do so, you can open up to the book of uh, Acts. We're going to be in Acts 18. Um, Peter, is my Bible on the back somewhere back there? Yup. Uh, yeah, can you bring that for me? It would help if I'm preaching on the Bible. Thanks, boss. Preach. Yeah. Uh, Acts 18. So we have been studying Paul's missionary journeys, and he goes on three different missionary journeys. We are in the midst of his second one. And much of this missionary journey kind of was forced upon him as he's been chased from city to city uh, over and over. And so some of this trip he has doubled back to see some of the churches, see some of the Christians he's already met with, he's already poured into. But then he's also gone to some new places, right? At one point he wanted to go south, he wanted to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there yet, you need to keep going this way. And so he crosses over and he ends up in Europe, into Macedonia, to, he goes to Thessalonica and Philippi. Um, and last week we looked at his time, he made his way into Athens. He was in Athens and he taught and reasoned with the philosophers and the academics and he brought the gospel to them even without opening a Bible before them. And so his journey continues and as he goes from Athens, which is considered the light of that area, the, the light of culture and influence and art and a place of uh, deep thought and democracy and, and all of these things, he goes from this place of light to a city that is controlled by darkness and chaos. And so this morning, as, as I've been reading this passage over and over, this getting ready, I, I've been really reminded of um, Matthew 5, where, or Mark 5, sorry, where Jesus and his disciples, they get on a boat, disciples, I want to, let's cross the Sea of Galilee, let's go to the other side. And so they get on the boat, and it doesn't say it uh, in the text, but the disciples are a bunch of fishermen, right? Like, they know the sea, they know how things go. A storm hits, and they knew a storm was coming. Jesus told them, we're going anyway. But a bunch of these disciples, they could read the skies and, and be like, yeah, I don't know if that's a great idea, but they go anyway. And they get caught up in a storm in, in the Sea of Galilee, and the boat is getting thrown all over the place. The disciples are freaking out. These are grown men, fishermen, lifelong generational fishermen, and they are freaking out, overwhelmed. And the whole time, Jesus is taking a nap. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. That's what he said. Jesus is taking a nap. He wakes up, and the disciples say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you care about what's happening to us? And Jesus just stands, and he says, be still. And the wind and the waves are still. And the disciples are shocked and amazed by this. And he says, really? You still don't believe? You still don't trust me? You still don't know who I am? And I come back to that passage as we look here at Acts 18, because sometimes the things God wants to teach us, we're only going to learn in the midst of the storm. Sometimes there are lessons, there are things that God wants to teach us and, and show us about ourselves and show us about himself that he can only teach us in the midst of the wind and the waves. Paul has been running hard and fast for years at this point, preaching and proclaiming and avoiding getting killed over and over, and now he finds himself in the midst of one of the darkest, hardest cities to be in, and God speaks to him, God speaks to him, and he speaks to us this morning, and he reminds us who is in control of all things at all times. So that's where we're going today. Let's pray, let's pray and then we can read and, uh, and jump into what God has for us. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to celebrate you, to enjoy you. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your faithfulness to this church for a long, long, long time. That as the people have changed, as the neighborhood has changed around us, you, your gospel has stayed put, has stayed here, and has continued to be a light in this place. God, I pray that you would continue to strengthen this community, bind us together, lift us up, lift as we help each other up, as we hold each other up, help us to be resting on you for our foundation. God, we pray for our kids this morning, the kids of Grace Place, that you would speak to them this morning, reveal yourself to them this morning as they hear and learn about you and your character and your goodness. Pray that they would shine through, that they would who you are and how much you love them, Lord. I pray for the leaders of Grace Place, the ones serving this morning and the ones that aren't serving today, that you would continue to provide for them an abundance of, of patience and energy and joy and enjoyment of what they do. To be able to pour into the future of our church, the future of the church, to train up and raise up kids to come and know you, Lord. I pray that the children of this church would know you at an early age a long, long time. God, we pray for the village village church of Oak Park and Pastor Mark, and, and Lord, we thank you that you have, uh, for the ways that you have cared for them, the ways you have provided for their building the, and the, the work and the long haul that they have gone through and the, the rest that they can find now, the settling into a place to call home. Lord, I pray that you would continue to raise up leaders and, and strengthen them as they kind of come back together for the first time in a long time. Lord, I pray for... Uh, Pastor Mark and his leadership team, as you would continue to, to strengthen them as a community. God, as we open your word this morning, you have a word for us. You have a reason we are in this passage. You have a reason for us to be listening, to be reading, to be studying this today. And so, God, I pray that I would get out of your way. God, as I preach, let the words of my and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We can stop there. For now, So Paul leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. Like I said, Athens was known for thought, for art, advanced thinking. Corinth 
if those are the things Athens is known for, Corinth is known for sex and money. Corinth very quickly became the seat of Roman power. It held the status as one of the most rich and powerful cities of Greece. Because of where it was positioned on the sea as a, a harbor, it was a harbor town not only north and south, but east and west. West. It was the hub of commerce, the hub of communication, the hub of intersection. Basically, if you wanted to go anywhere in Europe at some point, you wanted to get anywhere helpful, you're going to Corinth. Corinth had two patron deities, Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility. The worship of Aphrodite involved much cult prostitution. It boasted over a thousand female cult prostitutes. Their income was a major source of the city's revenue. Much of this city's financial health was based around this prostitution ring. There were also many long-haired male prostitutes that pursued homosexuality, which was also rampant in Corinth. This practice, along with the general immorality common in that city, gave Corinth this wicked reputation. In fact, the Greeks invented the word to Corinthianize, which basically meant to live an immoral life. A Corinth girl was a synonym for a prostitute. It was a dark place spiritually and morally. Paul gets there, and he's a little overwhelmed. But he meets a married couple, two Jewish people, Aquila and Priscilla. They are in Corinth because Claudius Caesar kicked the Jews out of Rome. And not only the Jews, but many of the Christians. A historian writing at the time wrote that the Jews were removed from Rome due to unrest regarding Crestus, which many believe, you look back now, and Crestus was actually Christ. It was a misunderstanding of the word Christ and of Jesus. And so basically what was happening, as we've seen throughout Acts, right? The gospel was going into these cities, going into the synagogues, making people uncomfortable, causing some conflict, and conflict kept arising in all of these cities. And so finally, Caesar had enough, and he said, get out. We're tired of this. And he kicks many of the Jews and the Christians along with them out of Rome. This wasn't the first time. It won't be the last time. But it's a reminder of, to us that God is in control of all things at all times. Because God orchestrated this meeting, this connection between Paul and this married couple through the working of a Roman authority figure who had no idea that he was going to do this. This couple is in Corinth and they meet Paul and they become friends and co-laborers as they all work in the same business. They are tent makers. They work with leather. Now we don't know if Aquila and Priscilla were Christians before they met Paul, but it seems that Luke goes out of his way to call them Jews. So I don't think they were saved before they met Paul. But at some point, they do believe. Because Paul really is the embodiment of this idea of, as you are going, preach the gospel. As you are going, share the gospel with those you interact with. As Paul worked and lived and engaged with the world around him, he was always on the hunt, always ready to share the gospel message. Later on in Romans 16, Paul will refer to this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, as fellow workers, as co-laborers, not in tent making, but in spiritual, in the spiritual sense, in the mission and ministry of the gospel. He says in Romans 16, this couple risked their necks for me. They risked their lives for me. They become important parts of the Christian ministry, and we'll look at some of what they do next week, Lord willing. Now verse 5 tells us that Silas and Timothy arrive after having been in Thessalonica. They stayed behind as Paul left. They stayed behind to encourage the church, encourage the Christians there. Finally, they 
catch a boat, and they join Paul in Corinth. And it's during this time when Silas and Timothy get back to Paul. They tell them about what's been happening in Thessalonica since he left. And it's in response to that that Paul writes one of his first letters, one of his earliest letters to a church in 1 Thessalonians. He gets a response, gets some questions, gets some updates from Silas and Timothy, and so he writes a letter in response to what's happening in Thessalonica. And when Silas and Timothy get to town, they see that Paul is doing what he's always doing. He's preaching Jesus as the Messiah, is the Messiah, to the Jews. In verse 6, as usual, Paul is preaching Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews. That's what he was known to do. He would go into the synagogues and preach. As usual, the gospel is proclaimed, some believe, and as usual, there are some who oppose and want to fight Paul over this message. Paul finally has enough of the opposition, and he shakes out his garment. It is a dramatic over-the-top gesture of saying, I am done with this place, I am done with you people, I don't want a speck of dust on my clothes that comes from you guys. As we've seen Paul do in a few other places, he decides, look, my heart, my calling is to go to the Jews first, to preach in the synagogues first, but if that is rejected and I don't make any traction there, that's fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. I'll go to the more receptive crowd, namely the Gentile crowd, and so you see, the, the opposition that Paul faces, which he faces every time he does this, it doesn't shut him down, it doesn't stop him, it just changes the direction. He's flexible, he adapts, and he just pivots to where he needs to go. But the plan is always the same, preach the gospel. And so he will go to the Gentiles, he says, and lucky for him, he doesn't have to go very far. In verse 7, it says he goes to the house of Titius Justus. It says he is next door to the synagogue. Literally, in the Greek, it says that basically he shares a wall with the synagogue. He literally lives in the extension of the building. And that's where Paul will kind of have home base for him. In the midst of this change of venue, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and his entire household put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they become part of the family of God. And he's not the only one. It says at the end of verse 8 that many Corinthians heard Paul believe and were baptized. This seems to be another standard trip. If you've been with us as we've walked through the book of Acts, this seems to be another standard trip to a city for Paul, right? He goes to the synagogue, he preaches, some of them respond, some of them believe, some of them get angry, so then he goes to the Gentiles, some of them believe, some of them don't. It's kind of same old, same old, rinse, wash, repeat, right? And yet, there's something different here because we see in verse 9, Paul received a vision from God that he very much needed. Verse 9 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I, am, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Keep going. Don't go silent now. I am with you, Paul. There are many in this city who don't believe yet, but they will. Don't be afraid. You don't have to tell a brave or confident person, don't be afraid. You don't need to reassure someone who is focused and determined, a sure-footed person, don't be afraid. Which is, when I think of Paul, that's how I think of him, is, is focused and determined. And I don't tend to think of Paul that way. So 
Jesus, where is this coming from? This is one of those places where the Bible interprets the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 2.3, later on, Paul will write a letter to the Christians in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 2.3, it says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul admitted to the Corinthians that when he showed up, he was scared and overwhelmed by what was happening. Maybe that's in connection with the fact that he came from what happened in Thessalonica and Berea, where he was chased by, his, he was chased by those who opposed him, and from Berea to Thessalonica, and they tried to kill him. And that combination, and really the last couple of years of him constantly having his life threatened, that combination, and then he shows up into Corinth, and there is this widespread, blatant, sinful debauchery of Corinth. Paul needed to be encouraged. He just, he needed a boost. And notice how Jesus speaks to Paul. He doesn't scold Paul for being afraid. He doesn't belittle Paul for being overwhelmed. He doesn't think or treat Paul worse because he needed to be reassured. Jesus just reassures Paul. He steps in at the right time with the right words to fill up and strengthen what Paul needed. Now, considering how some of Paul's missionary journeys have gone, Jesus is sure to tell Paul, look, there won't be any physical harm to you here. He doesn't say that there's going to be no problems. He just says, you know, this time you're not going to get whipped or beaten or stoned. So that's a plus. He doesn't say it's going to be perfect. He just says, physically, you'll be fine. He also promises Paul there will be fruit from these endeavors. I know you're frustrated. You had to shake off your robes. I know you're annoyed and frustrated. If Paul, if you are willing to stick it out, if you are willing to continue to show up and engage and keep doing what I have called you to do, there will be those who come to faith in Corinth. Because God already knows the people who are chosen by him. See, this is what Jesus does. God steps in and he takes care of those who are his. He reveals himself to us in many different ways at different times. See, God is always the same. He's always fully himself, but it, it's sometimes as if he emphasizes different aspects of his own character, different points of who he is for us when we need it. Sometimes we need God to be the encourager, the one to remind us of who he has made us to be and that he's with us. Sometimes we need God to be the authority figure, the the one to teach us right and wrong and even discipline us when we need it. And sometimes God is for us, as it says over and over again in the Bible, a shepherd. One who can protect and provide and lead his sheep. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous passages of scripture probably in the Bible. And David writes it and he talks about God as his shepherd. Something David knew all too well as he himself was a shepherd. And he talks about God as his shepherd. The shepherd who provides for his sheep. The shepherd who takes care of the wants and needs of his sheep. So that they have no wants. So that they can be at peace. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, sheep are not smart creatures. Left to their own devices, they fall off of cliffs. They will eat grass until they eat all of the grass and they're just eating dirt and make themselves sick. They will go and try and drink from a stream and if the current is even a little bit strong, they will fall in and get swept away. Sheep need someone to watch over them. They do not last very long on their own. They need someone to lead them and care for them. 
In Psalm 23, 3, it says that he, God leads me in the paths of righteousness. See, a shepherd wants to get his flock to green pastures and still waters, to the places of rest and replenishment. He wants to lead his flock to the places of safety and security. And so he does that by leading us along the right path. The shepherd, our good shepherd, doesn't make a wrong turn. He never gets lost in leading us along the way. The more that we let Jesus lead us in righteousness, the more and more we can trust him and the path that he has for us and know that he has the best path for us. We can always trust him. You see, Israel is not known for its lush greenery. So when you think of a shepherd leading to these lush pastures and still waters, Israel is not known for those things. Israel is known for rocks and hills and mountains, which means finding the green pastures and still waters meant leading sheep on long journeys. You had to travel a long time to find the good spots, and they wouldn't last very long. And so these shepherds and sheep would be walking up and down hills along mountainsides on very narrow paths, so narrow sometimes that the sheep would have to walk single file or else they'd fall off. And when they did that, the shepherd, instead of being in front, the shepherd would go behind at the end of the pack so that he could keep an eye on them to make sure they didn't wander off the edge, to make sure something didn't come around and grab one of them. And so what a shepherd would do was that as he was leading his sheep on these narrow paths, he would take a rock and he would throw it ahead to point to the sheep. This is where you need to go. The footing would be unstable, but he was always leading them somewhere better, whether or not they knew it. See, God is always leading us to what is best for us. Not just what is good enough for us, but what is best. Which means sometimes he leads us on paths that seem too hard and too narrow. And our natural inclination is to ask why. Why did we leave what we thought was so good to go on this narrow, unstable path? Why are we going this way? Why is this happening to me? Why, did I, why didn't I get that job? Why did that relationship end? Why am I going through such a hard time right now? I don't understand. We, as the sheep, need to remember that the shepherd knows what is right and what is best. And he has proven over and over again that he is trustworthy. He leads us in these ways. He leads us in these paths of righteousness. And he does so for his namesake, it says in Psalm 23. God guides us for his sake, for his glory, so that his name and his reputation will be made much of, so that we will bring glory and honor to the name of the shepherd who has fulfilled us and led us and provided for us. And we're end of those narrow, unstable paths. We can say, look what God did. Look how he brought us through. God's goodness and protection and provision is motivated not because of how great we are or how good we are or even just how okay we are, but rather because of who he is. It's because of his character. It's because he's the good shepherd. And so it is for his glory he does these things, that he leads us, and we need to trust him even when we are scared. Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, verse actually connected. These aren't two separate thoughts. The restoration of my soul, the paths of righteousness that God is leading us on, sometimes those paths lead us through dark valleys. As the shepherd would lead the flock in search of these green pastures and still waters, like I said, he would travel up and down hills and valleys 
It would be long and treacherous. Sometimes the valley of the shadow of death is as much the right path for us as the green pastures and the still waters. When David writes this psalm, he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I walk through. It's not the destination. It's not home. He's walking through, and he isn't running. He isn't walking briskly. Remember, like, as a kid when, like, you had to turn the lights off in the basement and the light switch is on one side of the room and the stairs are on the other side. And so, like, you do that thing where, like, you, like, hit the switch and run as quick as you can because of the scary shadows. That's not what David's doing here. He says, I'm walking. I'm just walking. I'm not letting the surroundings overwhelm me. He says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Charles Spurgeon said this about the shadow of death. He said, death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. Someone has said that when there is a shadow, there must be light somewhere, and so there is. Death stands by the side of the highway in which we have to travel, and the light of heaven shining upon him throws a shadow across our path. Let us then rejoice that there is a light beyond. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Death may be around, it may be lurking, but through Christ's death and resurrection, he proved he was more powerful than anything in this world, death included. And for the Christian, death is not the end. Death for the Christian merely means we are reunited with God. It means perfection. It means being with the Good Shepherd. There will be times in our lives when we have to walk down and through the valleys of the shadow of death. There will be times of darkness where we will see scary shadows and we are afraid. David says we have no reason to be. Why? God is with us. If you read Psalm 23, it's the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul for his name's sake. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the pronouns change and it becomes, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, it's in the dark and the scary and hard places of life that God's presence in our lives is most magnified. I told you when the sheep are on these narrow paths, the, the shepherd would take a rock and he'd throw it ahead to let them know where to go. And he'd stay behind. And as he stayed behind and he walked along these narrow paths, the shepherd would take his rod. He would take basically, it was used for protection. He would take his rod and he'd bang it on the side of the rocks. He'd bang it on the rocks to let them know, look, I'm right here. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. I'm with you. I got you. I'm protecting you. I'm watching. I still have my rod with me. If something happens, I can still fight off any bear or wolf or whatever might come out of the darkness. I still have my staff with me. I'm still walking with you. I'm still leading you. Yes, I know it's scary. Just keep going. Even though you can't see me, I'm still here. When it's dark and scary and we wonder where is God and what is he doing, you have nothing to fear because you have a God who cares for you. And to him, you are much more than just a dumb sheep. You are special. You are important. You are chosen. You are created in his image and likeness. I had a conversation this week with somebody, and we talked about how much of our issues and our conflicts in 
our world, how much of our own suffering that we bring upon ourselves is tied to either not knowing or forgetting who we are in Christ. That we lose sight of who God has made us to be as Christians. That we forget and we lose sight and we get distracted and overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world and we feel swallowed up by it. We forget that we are children of God in John 1.12. That he has justified and redeemed us in Romans 3.24. That we are co-heirs with Christ. What is Christ's inheritance is ours in Romans 8.17. We are righteous in the eyes of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we are loved by the creator and sustainer of all existence, as we know from John 3.16. These are truths from scripture, that when you accept the gift of salvation, these things are yours. If you are a Christian, that's you, and so much more. We could spend hours talking about how we have been made and transformed in Christ. If we are regularly, daily, hourly reminding ourselves of these facts, dwelling on these things, then you'll have no need for the secondary arguments and fake, weak distractions of this world because we will remember who we are and who God is. This assurance, this understanding, this knowledge, it's here for us in Scripture. It is a gift to us. And the more we know God, the more we know Jesus, we will begin to see him more and more in us and more and more we will understand who God has made us to be in Christ. Getting back to our passage, this vision Paul receives, it really it stuck out to me this week. That, that was the thing that I just kept, as I read and I listened to this passage, this is the thing that jumped out over and over again. I think it's partially, I think it's a word I needed this week, and I, I think it's a reminder for all of us. It's okay to need help. It's okay to need encouragement. It's okay to be sad or hurt. We have this idea that we got to put on this face when nothing is wrong, nothing is out of my control, I got this. And if I don't got it, either then it means that I'm weak or I'm incapable or somehow I'm letting God down or I'm not a strong enough Christian, I didn't pray enough, I didn't have enough faith. Because if I did, then maybe I wouldn't be sad, maybe I wouldn't be overwhelmed. And that's just not true. Read the Psalms. I mean, you can open the Psalms and basically just stick your finger on any one of them. They are full of language of people going through some stuff. Psalm 102 has phrases in it like, I am like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am a lonely sparrow on the housetop. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. That guy is not doing well. And it's okay to feel those things. It's okay to pray those things. Those phrases are recorded. The eternal living God of all existence, this is his word. And he said those words need to be eternally written down and kept in my word. Because people need to know it's okay to be in that place. And the psalmist isn't in trouble for feeling that way. He's not scolded or kicked out of the community. He's not embarrassed or left and put off in the corner because he's depressed. No, he feels what he feels, and he feels hurt, and it's okay to feel those things. Don't bottle that up. Don't try to ignore it. Reach out. If that is you, if you are struggling, if you are wrestling, get help. And if you aren't in that spot, if you're looking and evaluating yourself and saying, life is hard, but, but God is faithful and I'm doing well, amen. Be a help to others. Don't be a hindrance and a stumbling block for someone. Don't try and judge them because they are struggling. 
Don't try and judge and be a hindrance to someone just because they're having trouble getting off the couch and putting pants on. Check in on each other. Be intentional to lift each other up, to encourage one another. That's why God has given us this community. See, it's the great thing about the Psalms is that they are a roller coaster of emotion. It's, I'm good, I feel connected, God, you and me are great, and then all of a sudden I feel low, I feel alone. God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? I'm so worn out, my bones are on fire. But most of the time when you read the Psalms, there's this turn. Even in those Psalms, even in a Psalm like 102 where he's eating ashes and drinking tears, there's still a turn. There's this turn of but God. You guys know that's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, but God. It's this stop. Things are ugly. Things are dark. I'm in sackcloth and ash. Everything is ruined and falling apart, but God. I'm alone. I'm sick. I'm tired. My loved ones are sick. I feel helpless. Money is tight. Jobs are lost. People are dying. Relationships are strained. I'm lonely and just overwhelmed, but God. See, but God doesn't negate or erase the problems. But it's that glimpse of light that Spurgeon was talking about. It's that light from beyond. But God is set apart because God is different. But God does and is something completely opposite of. Even in the midst of the pain, pain that we may feel, God is at work. When we feel like we can't go away another moment, Another step, we got to remember where true strength comes from. Because yes, if you're trying to do this all on your own, if you're just leaning on yourself and like white knuckling it through life, I'm just going to get there on my own talents, gifts, and abilities, eventually you're going to run out of gas and fall apart. You will become jaded and frustrated by a world in which it seems that the scales are ever tipped in the favor of darkness. And it will lend you to go that way, thinking, you know what? I, I can't beat them, so I join them, and the grass is always greener, and I'm just going to go along with what the world has to say. Everything has an expiration date in this world. Everything. Everything about this world is failing and falling apart. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will last forever. That's the only thing that's going to stand. When everything else has run its course, it will be God and his word forever and ever. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Strength is not found in you. It's in Christ. When you feel exhausted and fried and you just don't have it in you to take another step, and you think everything is lost and worthless, remember that the story is in the hands of the author of all existence. And for those who have placed their faith in hope, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God is your strength. Literally, God is, the word is rock, portion, inheritance, to know God forever and ever, to be in right relationship with him. That is part of the inheritance of the children of God, the portion of the people of God. He is a refuge and a shelter, a place of rest and rejuvenation, and to be enjoyed. And as that happens, we are strengthened by him to go and continue to live and engage with this world. Paul receives this word of encouragement, and it strengthens him. He is able to go on and push on, and he stays in Corinth for another year and a half. 
because he knows he doesn't have to fear for his safety, and so he sticks around because it's the first time in a long time he doesn't have to worry about somebody throwing a rock at him. But over time, some of the Jews do rise up and they attack Paul. They want to see him suffer. They want something to happen to him. And so they capture him and they bring him before the tribunal, before the local authorities. And they do the same thing that a similar group did to Jesus and to Peter and actually previously to Paul. They use Roman law to try and handle their dirty work. Go back into Acts 18. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosemphenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It says, this man, they bring this charge against Paul in verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Not their own law, because the Romans couldn't and wouldn't try and officiate over Jewish law. No, they're speaking to the Roman law, which says you can't preach and teach a religion that isn't sanctioned by the Romans. They decided what was allowed to be taught. Judaism was accepted and a sanctioned religion. And the Jews were saying that what Paul was preaching, this gospel message, wasn't part of their traditions and religion. It was illegal, and so he should be stopped, and not only stopped, but punished for what he's done. Now, usually history has showed us, the book of Acts has showed us, that if you appeal to a Roman authority figure and just appeal on the basis of he's causing trouble and making noise and unrest, They'll shut it down real quick because they're all about peace and quiet. And Paul knew that too. He's about to open his mouth. He's about to give us one of those Paul defenses where he lays out his argument and, and throws down the gospel. And it's this great thing. He's about to go into it. He opens his mouth, but he doesn't even need to say anything. Before he can say something on his own behalf, the proconsul Gallio says, basically, look, this isn't about a real crime or complaint. This is about words and names. This is an argument of semantics that is best handled amongst yourselves. It has nothing to do with Roman law. He chalked this up to Paul saying or doing something that the other Jews didn't like. He didn't care to get in the midst of any of it. Now, this might seem just like a Roman leader just not caring about the Jews, and partially it is. Anti-Semitic thought and rule was all over this part of, this part of the world at the time. But there's actually a lot going on here. Had Gallio ruled against Paul, and said, yeah, what he's doing is illegal, then his, Paul's ability to travel and preach the gospel would have been severely hindered and even by not condemning the gospel message that Paul is preaching, by just walking away and washing his hands, Gallio just established precedent moving forward that Christianity could not be charged under Roman rule. He basically just endorsed at all times. This decision, or lack of decision, enrages the crowd. We aren't entirely sure who the they are in verse 17, but we see a group 
grabbed the new ruler of the synagogue. The old one was Crispus, right? The beginning of the passage, Crispus is in charge of the synagogue. He becomes a Christian, and so he lost his job because of it. Uh, and so there's a new ruler of the synagogue, and he would have been the lead prosecutor against Paul. So he's the scapegoat for this failing. In a fit of mob mentality, this group grabbed him and beat him. And though Gallio could do something about it, as he just said, he would weigh in on vicious crimes. And there's one happening in front of his eyes right at that moment. He decides not to. Again, it seems that Gallio was, it wasn't about that he was in favor of Paul, that he was supporting the gospel. More so, he was just against the Jews and he wasn't too interested in getting involved. And so in an interesting turn of events, when Paul writes his first letter to the church in Corinth, when he writes 1 Corinthians, he begins 1 Corinthians like this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sosthenes. Apparently, the events of this day helped plant a seed in the heart of this man, and at some point, he too gave his life to Christ. And so after this ruling from Gallio, it says in verse 18 that Paul stays in Corinth for a while, which makes sense. God told him, no harm's going to come to you. You'll be able to physically be fine. And the government just said, you're not going to be charged. You're not going to get in trouble with us. And so for the first time, Paul was experiencing peace and freedom to preach and teach without looking over his shoulder. So of course, he stays a while, but he doesn't stay forever. He could have. He could have just posted up there in Corinth, lived, being a light in the very dark, messy place of Corinth. But Paul knew he had other things to do, that, that he wasn't called to stay. And so he leaves with Priscilla and Aquila, and they set sail. And along the way, along the journey, it says that Paul shaves his head to complete a vow that he made. Some say it's a version of the Nazarite vow that, like, Samson was under, where you don't cut your hair and you don't drink alcohol, and there's a couple other things. It seems Paul was, took some kind of vow. We don't have a whole lot on it. But at this point, he felt that he had fulfilled it, and so he felt he could shave his head. It was kind of like um, hockey players during the playoffs. They grow their beards out until they lose or they win, and once they're eliminated, then they shave. I think that's kind of what Paul was doing. It was like, I'm going to just keep growing my hair out until some point. He decided some victory, and then he shaves his head. And so this is that moment. This moment of celebration and thanksgiving from Paul toward God for all that he had brought the apostles through. As he thought back over these two missionary journeys and the churches that were planted and the Christians who were baptized. And now here, the Romans just said, you can go and preach the gospel and you're not getting in trouble with us. That's a major celebration point for him. And so they go on this journey and they sail and eventually this group ends up in Ephesus which is where Paul wanted to go two years something prior when the Holy Spirit said no what was a wait back then when the Holy Spirit said Paul don't go that way you need to keep going toward Europe what was a, a wait back then becomes a yes now Paul is able to go and do what he longed to preach and teach in the city of Ephesus he's able to leave the married couple there to help strengthen the believers as he goes on Paul continues to travel and worship. He visits some more churches. He actually gets his way back to Antioch. And he's able to spend some time preaching and encouraging people, as, which is what he loves to do. God led Paul to a very dark city in Corinth. It sure didn't seem to be the kind of place that would be receptive to the gospel and receptive to see change. Like I said, most of the financial stability of this city was based around prostitution. 
For maybe the first time, we see Paul overwhelmed by what is in front of him. Between what he had come through and the serious sin in Corinth, Paul needed some help and some strengthening, and God knew that, and God knows that. He sees you. He hears you. He understands you. I don't know what season of life you're in. Maybe this is one of those times where you feel exhausted and frustrated and overwhelmed. Do not give up on God. Do not give up on God to do something remarkable in your life. You might feel stuck. You might feel like you are trapped in a desert of loneliness or anger or broken relationships, addiction, depression, whatever it might be. I promise you he sees you. I promise you he hears you and he knows you. And he knows what you're going through. He knows what you need and when you need it and how you need to hear it. I promise whatever season you are in, whatever you are struggling with, God is at work. God is on the move. He hasn't stopped. He won't stop. And he loves you. And he's still God. He's still the God who lets shepherd boys kill giants. He's still the God who shuts the mouths of angry lions. He preserves men inside of fiery furnaces. He stops the sun in the sky. He makes the walls come tumbling down. He shows unconditional, unexplainable love by sending his son to die on a cross for us. God hasn't changed. He's still here with you and for you. Lamentations 3 says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Keep hoping. Do not be afraid because he made you and he knows you and he loves you. Promise he's got a plan for you. Let's pray. God, it is so easy for us to get into places that are overwhelming and exhausting and dark and scary and hard, and to think that you're not paying attention, to think that you are just leaving us to our own devices to, to think think a bunch of different things. To even just give in and, and give up. God, remind us that you don't ever stop. You are with us and for us all of the time. And sometimes we go through things because you're trying to show us something. You're trying to teach us something. And sometimes we go through stuff. We just need to be reminded that you're good. God, remind us you're good. We know you are. When the sun is shining, when we're on the mountaintops, it's easy to remember, and it's easy to enjoy it, and it's easy to even take it for granted. But God, as we walk through those valleys, it is real easy to forget how warm your, your light and your sun is. God, help us. As we struggle, as we seek to be lights in this world, as we seek to glorify you, as we try to be husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and friends and coworkers and, and neighbors, and we try and do all of these different things in such a way that points people to you and encourages people to know you, God, it can feel exhausting and it feel like nothing is coming from it and there's no fruit and everything is 
just wasting our time, but we know that's not true. We got history on our side that proves you are at work all of the time. You are doing something all of the time. God, help us to remember that, to trust in that, to trust you. God, I pray that you would give us a reminder and, and a comfort of our identity in you. And let that change and filter the way we interact with this world. God, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. And we, we ask that you would encourage us, strengthen us as we go through our week. We pray these things because you're good and awesome all of the time, even in the darkest. Amen.